Wednesday, October 31st, 2012, episode number 23 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Today podcast with Alex Reamer available on footballnation.com and for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows we have available on footballnation.com in the iTunes store if you've yet to do so it is Wednesday October 31st 2012 which of course means it is officially Halloween Hopefully you all are having a great time today, dressing up to work, uh, being festive, and the like. Uh, This past weekend, of course, in colleges and universities across this great United States was a a period of time known as Halloween Weekend. Uh, One of the crazier weekends to be in college. What a great time it was. I ran the gambling costumes, gym teacher, and farmer. I get, a, I get creative enough. I would say that's my strategy as far as Halloween costumes go. I'm not a guy who goes all out, plans it out weeks, if not months in advance, and don't snicker. Some people actually do this. Uh, Halloween is my least favorite of the quote-unquote party holidays. I think it's just a tad too much work and a tad too much planning is involved to just go out and party somewhere. I much prefer to just go dressed as me. A somewhat normal person. Emphasis on the word somewhat. Um, (laughs) So Halloween, if I had to choose, my least favorite quote-unquote party holiday. Just too much work involved for me. I like to make things as easy and simple as possible. But hopefully you all have had a great Halloween and are having a great Halloween today. And hopefully the weather is okay where you are. Hurricane Sandy barreled through the East Coast into the New England area earlier this week. Hopefully everyone, in all seriousness, is safe and sound from Hurricane Sandy and any uh, hardship that may have caused. Uh, Today is Football Nation Today podcast, episode number 23. We have a lot to get into. Uh, The first down segment today is going to be a themed segment, if you will. No, not a spooky themed segment like Halloween. We're not quite that lame. Uh, The theme is Big Market Teams in Trouble. I have four big market teams from the Jets to the Eagles to the Cowboys to the Chargers out there on the West Coast. I want to forget about our friends in Cali who uh, are in big trouble and they're in big markets. And a lot of those teams had some pretty big expectations heading into the season. So we'll talk about their situations in the first down segment. Second down segment, two stories we want to hit on. Firstly, we want to quickly follow up on the London story we spent a lot of time talking about last week on the podcast. The Patriots and Rams played last Sunday in London. I said last week on the show, it's inevitable a team moves overseas after seeing yet another game in London. I want to give you some quick follow-up thoughts on that. And also in the second down segment, I've spent some time this season dismissing the Atlanta Falcons and their 7-0 record. And oh yes, the Falcons have been great this regular season, but let's wait until the playoffs because Matt Ryan and the Falcons are 0-3 in the postseason. But I read an article this week on Yahoo Sports that made me take a step back and look at the amazing transformation of the Atlanta Falcons franchise over the past handful of years. We'll do that in the second down segment. Third down, it's the big up slowdown segment. 
where we're going to tackle questions such as Andrew Luck versus Robert Griffin III, who has been more impressive, uh, is there a definitive second-best team in the AFC, and uh, Romeo Cornell, the Chiefs have not led in regulation this season, does he unequivocally deserve to be fired? In the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant, ranting about something that isn't specific to football, but it has a lot to do with football. It's about ratings. The World Series ratings came out. They were at an all-time low for Major League Baseball. And why were the ratings at an all-time low? Well, a variety of factors. One of them not being the children. I'm sick of hearing about the children. We'll talk about that in the fourth down segment. It's episode number 23, Football Nation Today. My name is Alex Reamer. We'll be right back. And oh, by the way, while we're mentioning other sports... Happy NBA season to you all, with the NHL likely canceling games through November and possibly even the Winter Classic later this week. Hey, NBA, let's welcome another sport into the fray. Football Nation Today, episode 23 begins next. Just had to give the NBA a little shout-out. Celtics and Heat, of course, opened up the season last night in Miami. That game had a lot of juice. It always has juice, but it had especially more juice because of the Ray Allen situation. Uh, my quick finals prediction, if any of you care, Lakers over Heat. Yep, I think the Lakers will overtake the Heat this season. Miami will barrel through the Eastern Conference. Their only legitimate challenger will be the Celtics if Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce can remain healthy through a full regular season and the postseason, which certainly is a lot to ask, especially of Garnett. Um, but outside of the Celtics, I don't see any legitimate challengers to the Heat in the Eastern Conference. I will never buy on the Knicks because in, as long as they have Carmelo Anthony on that team, they will lose when it matters. Derrick Rose remains out with the Bulls. Uh, LeBron showed me a lot last season. I think he really uh, transitioned himself uh, into one of the greatest players in NBA history now. Uh, he is playing for history this season. There is no doubt about that. I just think the Lakers will overtake LeBron in the Heat because I'm a big believer in... Legendary players going for their last championship run, if you will. This is Steve Nash's last, one of his last seasons in basketball. This may be Kobe Bryant's one of his last seasons in basketball. Almost certainly may be one of their last chances to make a legitimate championship run with Dwight Howard. So I think ultimately the Lakers may be the team to overtake the Heat. But this is now LeBron's league. There is no question about that. Okay, so moving on to the football. Hopefully that wasn't... Too painful for all of you, but I'm assuming you are all sports fans, not just football fans. You enjoy all the sports, and I'm especially happy we have another sport to welcome into the fray with the, end of, with the NHL still in the midst of what looks to be probably a very long, if not season-canceling lockout. That's the very last thing that sport needs. Uh, but first down, NFL. On-field stories from the past week. Looking forward to the upcoming week, Week 9 of NFL action, if you can believe that, more than halfway through the regular season. And the theme is, as I said in the opening, big market teams in big trouble. Uh, a team in New York, the Jets, she may or may not be familiar with them. Uh, they lost 30-9 to to Miami last Sunday to fall to 3-5 and on the season. They have a bye week this week. Coach Rex Ryan has advised them to get away from each other to get away from the game of football for their off week. Then they return from the bye and play at Seattle, which is most certainly not an easy way 
to ease back into the swing of things. Uh, the special teams broke down on Sunday for the Jets against the Dolphins. A punt was blocked for a touchdown. A field goal was blocked as well. They give up a lengthy return on the kickoff. Uh, special teams coach Mike Westoff, if you watched Hard Knocks a couple of summers ago, was profiled as the special teams guru. He's very respected around the game in most circles. But that Jets special team, they allowed the kickoff touchdown return to Devin McCourty two weeks ago, McCourty of the Patriots, and then last week against Miami. Wow, another long kickoff return, a blocked field goal, and a blocked punt for a touchdown as well. Special teams breakdowns all over the place for the Jets, and if you're a team like the New York Jets, you cannot afford to beat yourselves on special teams, which is something they've been doing the past couple of weeks, last week especially, in their loss to the Dolphins. Uh, the funny thing about the Jets is, their defense has actually been solid, for the most part, even without star cornerback Darrell Rivas. Uh, I think they've gotten surprisingly pretty good play from their front seven. Antonio Cromartie has seemed to have a good year in the secondary. Cromartie has always been a very athletic defensive back, but the book on Cromartie used to be, once you get a receiver who can run an actual route, who can run actual patterns against him, uh, Cromartie's lost because Cromartie doesn't know how to follow a pattern. Uh, Cromartie was very effective years ago covering Randy Moss on the Patriots when Moss was in the division because Essentially, all Randy Moss did, especially in his latter years in New England, was run a fly route, or variations of it, straight down the field. And Cromartie is faster than most receivers, so he can get to the football in that situation. He can cover the football in that situation. But once you put Cromartie on a guy like Wes Welker, who could run routes, run patterns, go over the middle of the field, dip and dunk, uh, Cromartie couldn't keep up. But it seems as if this season, for the most part, he's made that transition. Uh, the big thing for the Jets, of course always comes back to the offense, and it always comes back to the quarterback. And I talked about this briefly last week in the Reamer rant, gave it a bit of a humorous slant, the Jets' complete and utter misuse of Tim Tebow. Well, this week, I want to follow up on those points and make those points a little more cohesive and a little more serious. Um, it is not a joking matter anymore if you're a follower of the New York Jets. They need to make a change at quarterback, and the bye week is the week to do it. I know Rex Ryan and the coaches have already come out in support of Mark Sanchez, so I know a change is not likely going to happen when the Jets travel to Seattle next week. But man, it should. It should. I understand they signed Mark Sanchez to the extension last offseason, but this has always been my question ever since the inception of this podcast over the summer. Why did the Jets acquire Tim Tebow if they don't feel comfortable going to him as a quarterback at some point in the season? They certainly did not acquire Tebow to use him as a decoy on offense. Tim Tebow only runs one offensive play with the Jets. He's under center, takes a direct snap, fakes a handoff to nobody, and then runs up the middle through the line. Gain of three. Nine times out of ten. That's how it goes. They use him on pump. Uh, they use him on punts. They faked a few plays, but Tim Tebow is in no way, shape, or form a regular part of the Jets' offensive packages. So why did they acquire Tim Tebow if they have no faith in him as a quarterback and they're not going to use him as a regular decoy on offense? Why the hell did they acquire him? And with and all the distraction and attention he brings with him and. 
The theory that many throw out there as to why the Jets are apprehensive to start Tebow over Sanchez after the bye week is, well, if they get away from Mark Sanchez, if they sit him for one week, they can never go back to him. That's it. He's done as a New York Jet. He's done as a quarterback. If the Jets sit Sanchez once for Tebow, they can never, ever go back to him. And my question is a very simple one. Why? Why is that? Last time I checked, T, uh, Sanchez is going to be under contract to the Jets next season. Um, last time I checked, the Jets can keep him if they want to, because he's under contract. So, doesn't that mean the Jets can go back to Sanchez if they want to? And I mean, if the guy's ego is too bruised after being sat after he sucked this season, then, well, he's not cut out for this line of work. It's as simple as that. If he's going to get his ego, if his ego's going to get bruised because he was benched, then Mark Sanchez isn't cut out for this line of work, and I guess it would be a good thing the Jets found that out. But it's obvious, you know? Rex Ryan and these coaches are not in love with Tim Tebow. It seems obvious to me from my viewpoint that Tim Tebow was an ownership-initiated, a Woody Johnson-initiated acquisition because the coaches do not know how to use him, as I said last week in the Reamer rant. They have no interest in using him. But they should. Because Mark Sanchez is not getting it done this season. And the thing with Sanchez is, he just has not improved over his four years in the league. He went 12 for 27 for 148 yards last Sunday, for example. The Jets have a running back based offense without a running back. Their top running back is Sean Green. Not getting it done. That's not someone who you want to carry the rock 25 times or so per game. Which is what needs to happen for the Jets to be successful offensively because Sanchez is not very good. He has a 52.9 completion percentage this season. Let me repeat. 52.9 completion percentage this season. Most NFL quarterbacks these days are up north of 60%. Sanchez, though, is at 52.9. He has a 10 to 8 Touchdown to interception ratio, so essentially a one-to-one TD to interception ratio. He's fumbled the football seven times as well. In fact, Sanchez has fumbled 36 times in his career. And his career is only roughly three and a half years old. When Sanchez first came into the league in 2009 and 2010, I thought he had potential. I really did. I used to host a radio show on a local Boston station in 2009 and 2010, and whenever Sanchez came up, I always said, he's going to get better. He's only 19, 20 years old. If this is his floor, then he has some serious potential, because Sanchez has been, in his career, a relatively decent playoff performer. He loves the spotlight. He's not afraid of the spotlight. I like that. I actually think Sanchez possesses some of the intangibles that are necessary to succeed as a quarterback in a media market like New York, and he's shown it in the playoffs. He's performed, dare I say, pretty well in a lot of his playoff games. He's won four road playoff games, not something a lot of quarterbacks can say, but he's reached his peak, or at least that seems like it's the case, and actually, he's regressed in some respects. That Jets offense is not a great offense, especially without Santonio Holmes. There are not a lot of weapons there. The only hope for the Jets offensively this season, as they're 3-5, and five, is to go with Tebow 
and maybe catch lightning in a bottle like the Broncos did in the second half of 2011. Because like 2011, the 2012 AFC playoff picture is wide open, especially for that sixth and final playoff spot. At 3-5, and five, the Jets are not out of it yet. But they could be very soon. And if they start Tebow, like the Broncos last year, another team, not a very skilled offense, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, they'll catch lightning in a bottle. Because it ain't happening with Mark Sanchez. He hasn't improved. In fact, he's regressed in a lot of areas. The Eagles lost 30-17 to Atlanta last Sunday. They are now a sub-500 team as they head into a primetime game at New Orleans this week. A very important game for the NFC playoff picture. The loser of that game, you have to think, uh, will believe their playoff hopes uh, take a significant uh, take a, uh, a their playoff hopes will be significantly hurt. Let's let's just say the loser of that game's playoff hopes will be significantly hurt. There, sorry, I'm speaking in roundabout English. Um, Andy Reid announced he's sticking with Mike Vick over Nick Foles for the game this Sunday against New Orleans. Uh, a move that I don't quite understand. I don't think it's as perplexing as some are making it out to be. Because like I just said, this is almost a must-win game for the Eagles. And it certainly is so for the Saints. As far as their playoff aspirations go this season as a wildcard team in the NFC. And the Eagles have invested, for better or for worse, in Mike Vick as their franchise quarterback. And is this the atmosphere? Is this the game you want to throw in a rookie like Nick Foles into? So, from Andy Reid's perspective, I kind of understand the decision to stick with Vic for one more game. But Mike Vic, man. Want to know perplexing? His career arc with the Eagles is beyond perplexing. Well, actually, maybe it isn't. I don't know. You decide. It's perplexing from the standpoint that he had a terrific 2010. He lost to Green Bay in the playoffs, didn't play a great playoff game, but his statistics in 2010 were phenomenal. He seemed like he finally got it. He went 8-3 as a starter, a 21-6 touchdown-to-interception ratio, and a 62.6 completion percentage. He was still running well, but he was staying in the pocket. His arm accuracy had increased. Mike Vick in 2010 turned into a complete NFL quarterback. An NFL quarterback who was worthy of a long-term contract extension, which the Eagles gave him. And since then, he's regressed. He has a 9-8, to eight, that's right, 9-8 to eight, touchdown to, inter to interception ratio this season. He fumbles the football a lot, too. It's perplexing. How does a guy, how is a guy so good in 2010 to only be so bad just two short seasons later? And he wasn't so good last year either, if you remember. He was hurt as well. That's perplexing. Now you say, well, Mike Vick got the contract and stopped working hard. It's what happened in Atlanta. He wasn't the hardest worker. He'd be the first one to tell you, well, then maybe it's not so perplexing. I don't know. Like I said, you decide. But ultimately with the Eagles, and I've said this ad nauseum on this show, a lot of people were high on the Eagles in the preseason. I was not. I picked the Eagles to miss the playoffs because, like I said in August, like I said throughout the season, there's something missing with the core of this team. It's not working. The sum of the parts are not greater than the individuals. It is not a recipe for success. It needs to be blown up. They failed last season and are failing this season. They have a litany of guys, and it's not just Vic, who do not get it. The defense needs a remake too. 
They gave up 30 points to Atlanta. The Falcons scored, and what was it? Their first five possessions? You're not going to win a game that way. They blew a 10-point lead to Detroit in the fourth quarter before the bye. Uh, there are some weeks where they don't show up at all, like their 27-6 loss to Arizona uh, early on in the season. The whole team, not just Vic, the whole core of the team, as far as I'm concerned, needs a drastic remake, and that includes the head coach, Andy Reid. One more week with Vic, that should be it. If the Eagles fall to the Saints, which I believe they will, because this team will not win a game they have to win, it's time to start the retooling process, rebuilding process, phase one of the blow-up process, if you want to phrase it like that, and go with the kid, Foles, Nick Foles, if the Eagles fall to New Orleans this week, which they will. This core will not win a game. They absolutely have to win. It's just not in their makeup. Frankly, sometimes intangibles rule the day. This is one of those cases. It's as simple as that. The Dallas Cowboys don't possess intangibles either. They beat themselves. They lost to the Giants last week and turned the ball over six times. Not going to win a game like that. The Giants didn't play that well themselves. I mean, they blew a 23 to nothing lead, which they held in the second quarter. They settled for field goal after field goal. Lawrence Tynes kicked five of them. But as I said, the Cowboys beat themselves. So well, that's fine. Giants didn't beat themselves. They won the turnover battle, so they won. I wanted Dallas's last drives. They had a second and one. Second and one. It looked like everything was clicking. Romo was marching down the field. I was watching that game saying, oh, I said some pretty harsh things about Romo in the past. They may have to uh, give him a May culpa of sorts on Wednesday's show. Mm, nope. Second and one. Can't convert. Then Romo ends the drive by running backwards and lobs it up there for an easy interception for the sixth and final turnover of the day, his fourth and final interception of the day. On the previous drive, Felix Jones, one of the running backs, fumbled. No one really touched him, just fumbled, lost the football, no ball control. The Cowboys are talented. They have a top 10 offense, a top 10 defense, but they beat themselves almost every single week. They're not well coached. They can't get plays in at the end. They don't do well in late-game situations, and that falls on the man at the top, the very top, Jerry Jones. And with Jerry Jones' authoritarian rule, no coach worth the damn is going to go in there. Think of it. Why has Jerry Jones always had subpar coaches? Wade Phillips, now Jason Garrett, because no coach worth the damn is going to go into that regime with Jones' authoritarian rule. What about Bill Parcells, Alex? Well, I'll tell you about Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells came in when Jerry Jones needed him because Jerry Jones in that time span was looking to get a new stadium approved. And if you remember, prior to Parcells being hired, the stadium was rejected. Jerry Jones needed to build that team up. So for a couple of seasons, and it was only a couple of seasons, he relinquished control to Bill Parcells. Parcells drafted a lot of that team, DeMarcus Ware and others. Stadium got approved, and then Parcells and the Cowboys parted ways. In comes Wade Phillips, in comes Jason Garrett. They need a coach there, or they're going nowhere. And they will not have a coach until Jerry Jones steps back a little bit, which frankly does not seem to be in his makeup. And speaking of coaches, how North Turner keeps his job is beyond me. The Chargers lost 7-6 to to the Browns last week. 7-6, to six, high scoring affair, if we lived in 1932. Robert Meacham, I don't know how I got in 1932, thinking Great Depression, I don't know. I'm a depressed person overall. Uh, Robert Meacham dropped a potential game-winning touchdown in the second half. 
Uh, but still, 7-6. to six. That's all the offense the Chargers could generate against Cleveland. Six points. Nice. Uh, and the Chargers have continued to regress. Uh, they play Kansas City and Tampa Bay before Denver again. So they could conceivably win these next two weeks, get back to above 500, and then that Denver game in three weeks is a real big game. <laughs> but the Chargers will probably lose because it's the Chargers we're talking about. And you look at their track record over the past five to six seasons. They hired North Turner after going 14-2 in 2006 and losing in the divisional round to the playoffs to, I think, an inferior Patriots team. They fired Marty Schottenheimer. They went with North Turner because they were not getting playoff returns. In 2007, they go 11-5, and losing the AFC Championship game to the Patriots in Foxborough, but Phillip Rivers played that game on a torn ACL. And now it's the Patriots' 18-1 season, of course. So it looked as if maybe San Diego was on the brink. In 2008, they fall back quite a bit. They go 8-8 eight eight in the regular season, still win the AFC West, though, win a round in the playoffs, but lose in the divisional round to Pittsburgh. In 2009, they regain their wits. They go 13-3 in the regular season, get that first round bye, then lose in the divisional round to an inferior New York Jets team. Then in 2010, they go nine. Uh, they uh, go nine and seven, miss the playoffs. And in 2011, they go eight and eight, miss the playoffs for the second consecutive season. And this year, they're three and four after starting two and zero oh, and appear on the verge of missing the playoffs for a third consecutive season. And a lot of San Diego are saying right now that North Turner still is not on the hot seat. How is that possible? I will not ever know. Second down segment, taking a look at some of the biggest off-field NFL stories of the week. Uh, this week, quickly, falling off our conversation in the second down segment on last week's podcast, an NFL team moving to London. Uh, Wembley Stadium sold out last weekend for Rams-Patriots. I know it's just one game, but all the games in London have sold out. It was a Super Bowl-like atmosphere, according to many media in attendance. Uh, but frankly, it doesn't really matter, you know, because a team is moving there. As we said last week, it's inevitable. Because it's the only way for the owners to expand the revenue stream. Outside of moving a team to Los Angeles, they're essentially tapped out in the United States. And I hear people talking about London as if it's some weird, faraway land. And, 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 and you know, a 24-hour flight. You think they were going to think about putting a team in Australia or in Saudi Arabia or something. Some weird, faraway culture. London. Uh, excuse me. London is not that much further from the East Coast than Seattle or San Francisco. Let me just say that right now. It's a five-and-a-half, six-hour flight maximum to London. That's what it is to San Fran, Seattle, and other areas in the West Coast. So, from the East Coast, it's really not that much further, if any further, than many areas out there in the West Coast. The biggest thing with London, of course, is the extreme time difference. It is a little more extreme than West Coast, but they'll find a way to get around it. A team that goes to London, especially if that team isn't from the East Coast, will undoubtedly get a bye the following week. Uh, there will be no quick turnarounds. No team will play in London on a Sunday night and then have to play, uh, you know, in Kansas City on Thursday night football. They... 
I have enough faith in the competence of the NFL schedule makers in which that will not happen. If a team in Major League Baseball moved to London, I wouldn't have so much confidence because the MLB schedule makers suck for the most part, I think, in the regular season. Tell me why April games are ever played here in Boston when a team like the Tampa Bay Rays plays in a dome stadium in, in Tampa Bay. I have no idea. Uh, with the NFL players, the NFL schedule makers, excuse me, I have faith would get this right. They would be able to balance it correctly if and when a team moves to London. And other people say, well, no players would ever want to go to London. No players would ever want to go to London. And my question is, why? You know, if the London team offers the most money, I think a lot of players would go there. And London is one of the major cities in the world. I mean, really? 20-something kid right out of college would rather play a few years in Jacksonville instead of London? Really? Come on, I don't think so. I don't think it would be so bad to play there. I really don't. They're not sending them to, I don't know, uh, Luxembourg or Russia or, you know, some, uh, or, 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 or Romania, you know, London, England, one of the major cities in the world. Top three, definitely. They speak English there as well. Better English than we do here, actually, for a matter of fact. Uh, so... A team's moving to London. It's inevitable. It's the only way to really expand the revenue stream, which NFL owners so desperately wish to do. And as I said, it wouldn't be so bad to play there. Or at least not as bad as some are making it out to be. When I quickly wrap up the second down segment with a look at an article I read on Yahoo Sports this week by the good football writer over there, Jason Cole. But the transformation of the Falcons tran franchise. And, you know, it maybe is making me evolve my opinion a bit on the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, the Falcons are, of course, 7-0. Best record in the NFL. They crushed the Eagles 30-17 last Sunday. And it really was a true symbol of how far they've come as a franchise since the onset of the Michael Vick dogfighting scandal five, six years ago. Uh, the Eagles are a team where they've always struggled to beat, but they beat them and beat them in a big way 30-17 last Sunday. And you look at the Falcons, they've gone to the playoffs in three of the past four seasons, and it's remarkable from where they were right after the Michael Vick dogfighting scandal. Remember the betrayal the owner Arthur Blank felt? Uh, he became a, you know, became a real sympathetic figure nationally, I think, on a lot of levels. Um, you know, they had that terrible year after Vic, and then Matt Ryan comes, franchise needs to be rebuilt, and they've gone to the playoffs three of the past four seasons. Now they're 0-3 in the playoffs in those seasons, but, as Jason Cole pointed out in his article, uh, all of the teams that knocked them out reached the Super Bowl, and two of those three teams won the Super Bowl. The Giants last year and the Packers in 2010 and the NFC winner, the Cardinals, in 2008. So all three teams the Falcons lost to wound up representing the NFC in the Super Bowl. And the Packers in 2011 and the Giants in 2012 uh, happened to win the Super Bowl. Um, so the teams that represent the NFC beat the Falcons. Maybe those playoff losses in retrospect aren't as bad. I would disagree about the Giants won this year. I thought that was a horrible loss. Atlanta showed no heart, no fight, no will whatsoever in that game. No pulse in that game. But on paper, maybe, the losses aren't as bad as previously thought. And with a 7-0 record and a very weak NFC South this year, the road to the Super Bowl will likely go through Atlanta this season. They'll undoubtedly get a first-round bye and home field advantage in the divisional round at the least. Uh, they have new coordinators. Dirk. Coder on offense, Mike Nolan on defense. They've changed up a lot of their schemes. They've changed up the way they play. Matt Ryan is now on pace to throw the ball more than 600 times this season. 
and is on pace for career highs in yards, touchdown passes, completion percentage, and QB rating. His QB rating is currently at around 103. Uh, and the Falcons, on paper at least, have the defensive ingredients to win in today's NFL. In today's NFL, of course, it's not about having a dominating defense. That certainly helps, but... It's about having a defense that can make the plays when they have to make them. What I mean by that is, it's about having a defense that can force turnovers. A corner who can jump around on a pass play. A defensive end who can get to a quarterback, wreak havoc in the pocket, force the quarterback to make poor, poor decisions. Because, of course, it's a passing league. And John Abraham can most certainly do that at defensive end for the Falcons, as can a guy like Ray Edwards. Uh, Asante Samuel and Dante, and, uh, Dante Robinson are very good corners who can make some plays. Brent Grimes is currently out, but Dante Robinson, Asante Samuel, certainly are guys who can jump routes back there in the secondary. They're two very good cornerbacks. Um, the Falcons have relatively the same nucleus this year that they've had last year and in seasons past. But they're going to be living proof this postseason that if you can just tweak some, tweak some things, the same core can evolve. In sports, we love to see teams evolve, we love to see franchises evolve, and we have seen, over the past four to five seasons, the evolution of the Atlanta Falcons franchise. This is the year where they undoubtedly have to take the next step. And I love franchises like this. I love teams that continually build year after year, and they eventually build to something great. And the Falcons could be on the verge of building to something great this season. It's a team I've been ignoring a little bit, discounting a little bit thus far, but my tune has changed on them. Look out for the Falcons this year. Not to win it all, because I still think they're improving come the playoffs, but they're one of the top teams to watch come the playoffs. It would be the real evolution of a franchise. And that's something we like to see in sports. Moving on to the third down segment this week, it's the Big Up Slowdown segment where I stay a state, say a statement and then affirm my agreement with it by saying Big Up or my disagreement with it by saying Slow Down. Big Up or Slow Down. The Broncos, Patriots, and Steelers all won last week. The Ravens had a bye. There is a definitive second best team in the AFC. No. Slow Down. There is not a definitive second best team in the AFC behind the Texans. The Broncos might be it. They play in a relatively weak division. Peyton Manning has been awesome as of late. Routed the Saints on Sunday Night Football last week. Him and Demarius Thomas and Eric Decker seem to be clicking on all cylinders. Manning's health may not be 100%, but his mind most certainly is. And his throws downfield have gotten much better as the season has progressed. Just need to watch highlights of that game, the bare minimum, to see how much Manning's arm strength has improved, and his accuracy and decision-making has been there from the start, and his arm strength seems to be following suit. Uh, the Patriots did a lot to alleviate worries with their 45-7 win over St. Louis. Aaron Hernandez was out, so the Patriots went to three wide with the one tight end, Gronkowski, and that's where they're still at their best. When Brady's working with Welker uh, between the 20s, and then Gronkowski in the red zone, who caught two touchdown passes and had two terrific touchdown dances as well. The Steelers are better. They suffocated Washington this week. The defense did great work against the Redskins and Robert Griffin III. And with all the injuries, the Steelers once again have a winning record. They're better. The Ravens still have a winning record as well in the AFC South. So all those teams have positives. A lot of them have big positives. But they also have question marks. The Broncos question mark to me would be the defense. 
Patriots offense, for example, when they played about a month ago, ran up and down the field against that Broncos defense. That Broncos defense has some playmakers, yes, but it's not a good defense by any stretch. Against an elite quarterback, can they make any stops? That's yet to be determined. Ditto for the Patriots, if not more so. Uh, when Sam Bradford and the Rams went deep against New England, they succeeded more times than they didn't. Chris Givens caught a 50-plus yard touchdown pass. When safety Tavon Wilson, a rookie, bit on a most simplest of play action. Um, and the Patriots offense still in close games. Can they close it out? Yet to be determined. The Steelers are still banged up. Troy Palomalu is still out. Jonathan Dyer, third string running back, has been very good. 200 plus yard games. Now he's out for this week. Mendenhall and Isaac Redman are back. But the Steelers do not have any consistency as far as health goes still. And Baltimore is banked up on defense. And they have Joe Flacco as their quarterback. Who isn't very good, in case you forgot, since Baltimore was on a bye this week, and they got trounced by Houston two weeks ago. So, all those teams have pluses, but they all have their significant minuses. This is a long, roundabout way of me saying, no, there's not a definitive second-best team in the NFC. Really, Broncos, Steelers, Patriots, Ravens, can you pick the best team out of those four unequivocally? No, not even close. That's why it's a no, a slow down to the question. Now, Andrew Luck led the Colts to a 19-13 victory over Tennessee last week with a game-tying 80-yard drive in the fourth quarter and a game-winning 80-yard drive in overtime. Big up or slow down, Andrew Luck has been more impressive this season than RG3, Robert Griffin III. Big up. He has. He's been more impressive. RG3 has been electric. He's been more dynamic. He is one of my favorite players to watch. And maybe my opinion is a little biased because I'm doing this after a week in which Luck led the Colts to a game-winning drive in overtime and a game-tying drive in the fourth quarter. And Robert Griffin III's Redskins fell 27-12 to Pittsburgh, and it was their worst offensive performance to date. Now, maybe my opinion's been clouded. But Andrew Luck, to me, has shown he can manage, and not only manage, but thrive in clutch late-game situations. He led the Colts from behind against Jacksonville earlier in the season. They took the lead in that game. The Jaguars came back to win. That's not Luck's fault. That's the defense's fault for not protecting the lead. He led them back with that great win against Green Bay. The first game after Chuck Pagano was diagnosed with leukemia. And he led them back to a victory against Tennessee this week. And all of this, by the way, has been done without Chuck Pagano, who is still battling cancer. Andrew Luck has thrived this season in the most, in the most pressure-packed situations. And that is something we cannot take for granted. That is something Cowboys fans know you cannot take for granted. Eagles fans know you cannot take for granted. Jay Cutler and the Bears. <laughs> Bears are off to a great start. They have a terrific defense. But late game, Jay Cutler? Eh, I don't think so. Ravens fans know you can't take it for granted with Flacco. It's important to close games. It's important to run the two-minute drill. And Andrew Luck thus far has shown to be quite good at it. Very good at it. RG3 is more electric, and he's more dynamic, and he'll produce more highlights. But at the end of the day, who will produce more wins? To me, it's the quarterback who knows how to win late. And Andrew Luck this season... From the come from behind win against Green Bay 
the come from behind win against Tennessee last week to his late game leading drive against Jacksonville earlier, earlier in the season has shown to me he knows how to win late, which is very important for a QB in this league. Final question. The Chiefs are horrible. Romeo Cornell deserves to be fired. Big up or slow down. Big up here. As I said in the opening, this is one of the most astounding statistics to me from the season thus far. The Colts haven't led in regulation yet this season. Their only win came in overtime. I mean, how clear could it be that it's not working there? How much clearer could it be they're not responding to Cornell? They played last year towards the end under Cornell, but seems like that was a fluke. Seems as if that was a fluke, right? I mean, that whole operation, Scott Pioli, first and foremost, needs to be blown up. I mean, Brady Quinn was their starting quarterback last week. He got knocked out, Matt Castle had to alleviate him, and Castle was announced will start this week for Kansas City. But can you imagine that? In today's NFL, the quarterback league it is, alternating between Matt Castle and Brady Quinn. Come on. And Romeo Cornell certainly hasn't gotten the most out of his talent. Jamal Charles only had five carries last week. Jamal Charles in a game which was uh, that was quarterbacked by Brady Quinn and Matt Castle. Really? With Quinn and Castle under center? They couldn't give it to Jamal Charles? One of the better running backs in the game? More than five times? And when asked about it after the game, Romeo Cornell said, I'm not quite sure. Why we only gave it to Charles five times. I don't know about that either. What? You don't know? Why you only gave it to Jamal Charles five times? Aren't you the head coach of the team? You don't know? What the hell is that? That comment is almost a fireable offense in and of itself. And the way the Chiefs have played this season, not leading in regulation, almost certainly is a fireable enough offense. Closing out the program today with a fourth down segment, it is the Reamer rant, and it has to do with television ratings. This past year's World Series between the Giants and Tigers, the Giants, of course, won in four games and concluded Sunday night, was the lowest rated World Series in MLB history. Now, a lot of people have said the reasons for baseball's low ratings and the low ratings of, you know, a lot of these sport games that start at prime time is the children. It's too late for the children. And I say, to hell with the children. Major League Baseball isn't the only sport that starts playoff games at 8.30 Eastern or later. The NBA Finals routinely get, begin past 8.30, as do the Stanley Cup Finals. The only exception, of course, is the NFL, but Sunday Night Football and Monday Night Football start at 8.30 too. The ratings for those most certainly have not suffered. In fact, Sunday Night Football beat Game 4 of the World Series this past Sunday night. Excuse me, and beat it by a wide margin, which shows you just how dominant the NFL is. And that's the point. We're not going back to a day where Major League Baseball is on equal footing with the National Football League. It simply is not going to happen. So let's stop being shocked and dismayed. When we read the ratings the next day and see that our national pastime has been beaten by a regular season football game, let's stop acting, let's stop acting so surprised when a clinching game for the World Series is blown out of the water by a mid-season Sunday night football game with a bad team, the Saints, in it. Let's stop 
being surprised. The NFL is king. Every other sport, MLB concluded, is a very distant second. And as far as start times go for all sports, Sunday Night Football, Monday Night Football, Finals Games, Sunday Cup Games, World Series Games, it is an antiquated thought to expect the MLB to start World Series Games before prime time. Because, ready? Here's TV 101. The networks can charge advertisers the most money to advertise in primetime slots, and as a result, MLB receives more lucrative television contracts. Their most recent contract, the ESPN, for example, is projected to generate $700 million per year over eight years. Primetime sporting events is not a new phenomenon. Almost every World Series game has been played in primetime since 1985. Monday Night Football has been in primetime for decades upon decades. This is not a new phenomenon. Games start in prime time. MLB does not have the national cash that the NFL does or even that a premier NBA matchup does. And considering NBA Finals games routinely tip off between 8.30 and 9 p.m. Eastern, and last year's NBA Finals between Heat and Thunder is one of the highest rated in history, I think it was actually the highest rated in history, we can't blame the start times. I think a big factor is our country's star obsession. And now the NBA simply has more captivating larger-than-life superstars than MLB than, than the MLB has. And the NFL is such a powerful brand, uh, it supersedes all of that. And somehow these kids magically stay up till 11.30, 12 o'clock to watch NFL regular season games, but can't stay up for, for until 12.30, 11.30, 12 o'clock to watch World Series games. Come on, give me a break. The fact of the matter is the kids like football better than baseball. And it has nothing to do with start times, because again, they're staying up to watch Sunday Night Football, I guess, but not the World Series? Even though they start at the same time? No! They just like football better than baseball! Sorry! It's time to admit that! The NFL has surpassed Major League Baseball as the country's pastime. Kids like it better. Adults like it better. Everybody likes it better on a national scale. Locally, baseball is still heavy, heavily popular in many regions, and the game is doing fine. There's more money around the game than there ever has been before. But baseball is a localized product now. It is not a national product like the NFL. It never will be again. The kids don't watch World Series games not because they start too late. Because they watch Sunday Night Football games or Monday Night Football games or, hell, NBA Finals games that start at the same time. Kids don't watch World Series games because they don't like baseball that much. They like football better. And again, it has nothing to do with the start times. Nothing at all. And that's coming from somebody who hosts a Red Sox podcast without a curse since 2005. I'm a baseball nut. A baseball fanatic but I can recognize reality. And I don't try to change it. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Football Nation Today podcast, episode number 23 on footballnation.com. As always, we encourage you to get involved in the program. Post on the Football Nation uh, show page, Football Nation Today, on footballnation.com. Leave a comment right there. We'll hopefully get some back and forth going. Hopefully we'll give you some hard opinions that... Uh, Feel passionate about one way or the other. We like to generate some conversation. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at AlexReamer1 is my Twitter name. Or shoot me an email, AReamer at BU.edu is my email address. So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next Wednesday. 
where we will recap week nine of the NFL, look ahead to week 10 of the NFL, and we will know who our next president is. Election day, this Tuesday the 6th. I don't get on my soapbox. I don't get on a moral high horse very often on this show, but I do want to say vote, 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 vote. I mailed in my absentee ballot over the weekend. If you have not yet obtained an absentee ballot, or if you haven't voted early in a state in which you can, and you don't think you can be there on election day, do it. It's 10 minutes out of your day, and it's a civic, it's a civic duty. It's what we do here in America. We vote. So get out and vote. That's my public service announcement to conclude Football Nation today, episode 23. So long. We'll talk to you next, next Wednesday.